This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edius 6. Check out the new Edius 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Hi, I'm Gordon Burkell, and welcome to The Cutting Room. This is part two of my interview with Ken Sallows. In this episode, we're going to talk about his work on Chopper, as well as his involvement with In the Blink of an Eye. Then, after the interview, Lauren and I will discuss this week's four-word film review. Unfortunately, no one's gotten it this week, so we're going to give another clue to the one we just announced. And of course, if you want to get involved, you can always email us at info at artoftheguillotine.com or follow us on Twitter at at artguillotine or, of course, on Facebook, facebook.com slash artguillotine. But now, on to my interview with Ken Salos. Now, in the editing rooms, uh, it can become a very political environment in there. What do you do to make sure that things stay neutral and yet you're able to advocate what's important for the film? I've fallen into that situation where you know, I've, I've crossed the line mm-hmm. and actually sort of um, said, okay, this is you know, just nuts and sort of... Uh, Basically, I was looking forward to the phone call that night, sort of saying, "Don't bother turning up the next day. Mm-hmm. You're an angry young, angry idiot." Yeah. But I've always said that the biggest difference, I think, between a great assistant editor and an editor mm-hmm. is that a great assistant editor can probably cut the film or edit the film as well as a, an editor can. Mm-hmm. But what the editor does is actually put up with the nonsense at the same time. <laughs> There's always a bit of nonsense that goes on in any film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the director actually wants something or other going on, and the producer's sort of saying that everything things behind everybody's back or whatever is going on, and yeah. you're sitting there thinking, well, really, it's the film. The best story I always tell about that is that sort of uh, is the Merch book mm-hmm. in some ways, and that sort of Merch actually said that sort of um, the key thing to actually for making any edit used emotion at fifty percent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been in an editing room with a director who's gotten sort of quite emotional and carrying on and sort of, uh, I'm saying, what are you doing? He said, well, I've read the merch book and it says that 50% of the reason for making a cut is being emotional. I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm being emotional. I said, no, not you. What's on the screen is the bit to be emotional about. <laughs> oh, so um, <laughs> at, at various levels. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it varies from project to project and so on and you have your, your favourites and your enemies, and sort of mm-hmm. I usually always go with a director, more so than a producer, because the, you work more so with a director than you do with a producer, quite yeah. continuously. Now, you've touched on the merch book, so I'd, I'd love to mm. jump to that. Uh, sure. You played a really important role in the development of In the Blink of an Eye, mm. and I was wondering if you could tell me the story about how that came about and your involvement in getting that published. The story of In the Blink of an Eye, uh, Walter Merchant's book about editing, was that Walter had come out to Australia in the late 80s uh, as part of a government program that he'd sort of tagged along with. Uh, it was a writer's program for aspiring writers in Australia. And bought a copy of Apocalypse Now with him, which he presented in the Sydney cinema and properly aligned the speakers for the first time. Mm-hmm. He then went to Spectrum Films, which in those days was in Willoughby, mm-hmm. and gave this lecture which became In the Blink of an Eye, which was In the Blink of an Eye. I think he and Richie Marks had actually been working on it quite a bit as far as talks to students, but he presented it. A person I knew who was the production secretary for the writer's course, Linda House, who became the producer of Proof and a few other Mm -hmm. films, had actually access to a cassette tape of his lecture. I said, I'd love to have a listen to it. She gave me the cassette tape, and I said, this is brilliant. And so I managed to get the 
cassette, cassette tape transcribed mm-hmm. and then got in touch with Walter and said, are you interested in looking at this uh, transcription of your lecture? And he said, sure. Backwards and forwards for a long while. Um, you know, I, was, I sent him, obviously sent him the transcription. He made a, you know, a few alterations because it was a literal transcription. Mm-hmm. You know, we struggled around for a while saying, well, how do we get it published? A friend of mine in Sydney who was doing some part-time work at this film and television school up there, a guy called Franz Vandenberg, noticed the spot, the transcription or the revised transcription on the publisher's desk at, at film and television school, Meredith Quinn was her name. He picked it up and took it home and sort of read it and said, this is brilliant. So he actually pushed Meredith Quinn, the head of publishing at Afters, to uh, mm-hmm. publish it. And so then, as a result of that, it actually became a, a book. You know, so Meredith got in touch with Walter. Uh, he revised it in book form. Um, he wrote an epilogue, which I wasn't thrilled about because by that stage, computer editing had just come in and it actually mm-hmm. became a bit technical. The whole purpose of the book, or the interesting to me in the book was it was a wonderful idea of what editing is from a non-technical point of view. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was sick and tired of reading technical books about editing. And I said, yeah. well, it's not a technical sort of, uh, occupation as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they got me to write the prologue to it in the first version and um, <clears throat> it was published. They were all very happy with it all the time being. You know, I'd, I'd spoken to Walter probably twice on the phone. I've still never met him in my life. I've never got paid a cent for it. Didn't worry me that I got never got paid for. It. I think I got five copies of the the first version. Went out of print. I didn't hear anything. Then all of a sudden, I heard that after had sold the book to Silman James Press in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and I think it was right, revised again. It's been revised since, and I think it's up to about its sixteenth or seventeenth printing. Oh, wow. And I always joke to film students that sort of. Um, have you read it in the blink of an eye? And they always get the American version because the, yeah. the Australian version is impossible to find these days. And sort of, um, I say, well, I wrote the original prologue, and it's been replaced by somebody or other uh, in the new version by somebody called Francis Coppola, whoever he is. I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever thought about writing your own book about film editing? No, because it's it's it had become too anecdotal. Mm-hmm. I think the greatness of Walter's book actually was that sort of. He could actually address the situation in a philosophical point of view. Mm-hmm. That's actually brilliant. That's sort of you know I, you can't do much better than that. And to be honest, I'm a little bit over his ideas yeah. these days. But sort of um, you know everybody asks me sort of these days you know are you going to do Walter Murch? I think I'll oh, give me a break. That was almost 20 years ago. You know that's sort of that's yeah. a long time ago. And I love sort of throwing in sort of the idea of other editors actually who I think are great. Yeah. And I guess we'll, I'll I'll wrap up the stuff with in the blink of an eye. But I was going to say that. Mm. Um, so Walter Murch touches on these six points of, mm. you know, helping make Reasons decisions. to make an edit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've met a lot of editors who, they, when they start out, they use these six points as their yeah. cutting point. But then the more they get into editing, they sort of find their own reasons for making a cut. And it's Brilliant. That's, that's the way it should work. That's the way it should honestly work. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not a, it's, the Murch book is sort of, shouldn't be used as the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's an idea. And it's yeah. a, I think it's a clear idea, and um, but should not be used by anyone as it's like this is the only way to make films. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's just it's a very good idea of somebody or other has been quite successful and quite brilliant in what they've done. Mm-hmm. I think. I was going to ask, uh, what are some of the the reasons you use to help make a decision in a cut? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really hard question, Gordon. It's a, it's, geez, that's that's a that's a tough one. It's sort of um, 
In a, well, the process of working in a, like an elongated dock over and working mm -hmm. out at the moment is initially with the advent of sort of computer editing and basically having, being able to just throw stuff together. Mm -hmm. I initially just throw everything together. Like I say, that's a good bit, that's a good bit, that's a good bit. Put it all together mm -hmm. in a chronological form and then look at it. And it's actually sort of a, a process of saying, well, okay, instead of actually having 150 hours of footage, now I've got three or four, and here are the good ideas, which are the ones that should we concentrate on or sort of push to actually make the the story of the documentary. Strange process of elimination in some ways. And then once you've actually got your basic structure of the, that, then you can actually add the, the frilly bits and so on, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know the cutaways or whatever. And so initial initial assembly of a documentary is like a series of sort of unbelievably boring talking heads. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, which should, should never be shown to anyone other than the director and the producer of the individual show you're working on. And I always try and make, in a drama, even though the first assembly is always a little bit long, it's not necessarily hugely long, but I always try and make it look as if it's still almost a finished film. So there's no sort of overlapping pictures, there's no overlapping dialogue, all the dialogue is clean, there's no sort of repetitive dialogue. Um, put shots in that sort of, I kind of know that they've been shot, but sort of we know that later on that we'll pull them out. Mm -hmm. But you know, here is the your first assembly, which is always usually the worst screening anyone can ever have. And mm -hmm. I always warn the producer and director of those to say, listen, even though you're excited, the shoot's over and everything went happy or bad or whatever, and now you're looking at the cut film, mm -hmm. which is basically these days is a week after they finish shooting, uh, this is going to be the most depressing sort of screening you're ever going to have in your life, so be aware of it. And no matter how many times I tell them that, they still get incredibly depressed. <laughs> they say, what have we done? We've made the worst film ever. I said, no, we start again from here. Yeah. Uh, here we, we've got, this is what we've got. And if they're in a fortunate situation where they can afford to shoot pickups, which in Australia is quite rare, mm -hmm. you know, they can go and do it. Um, and it doesn't matter how bad the cut is, first of all. It's like mm -hmm. you, as long as you've actually got the, the concept idea flowing, then you can change the, the picture edits around. You know, so that's how it kind of works. Uh, now, I'd like, I'd like to jump to Chopper. The film was based on a true story uh, that occurred mm. in Australia. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a background of the story, just so for those who haven't heard it, and then tell us how you got involved with the film. Uh, Mark Brandon reads uh, a serial criminal. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a sort of situation where his father encouraged him to be a thug or a pest, and potentially he killed 13 people. He was sentenced to uh, maximum security jail in Melbourne mm -hmm. and put into the more maximum security there, which is called H Division, or H Division, mm -hmm. and associated with a lot of uh, heavy-duty criminals in there. His claim to fame was that he actually killed all these people, but he really he didn't. A lot of it was just bluff and, and bluster. He'd formed a group within the prison, which was his own gang, and there are basically against a gang called the Painters and Dockers, who were the wharf workers, mm -hmm. who were the other gang. And as a matter of survival, he got, he got associated with a, a few journalists, and they managed to put out a few books which glorified him as a identity serial killer. Mm -hmm. Andrew Dominic became fascinated with the project, the Andrew who actually wrote the script and directed the film, mm -hmm. and decided he wanted to make a film about Mark Reed, because of this concept of a person who was theoretically meant to have killed all of these people, but really hadn't. He's only ever been, I think, convicted of one murder. Andrew's sort of coming from a music video commercials background, 
he'd written the script. I was working in Sydney at the time. He and Michelle, uh, his producer, rang up, said, do you want to read the script? We're interested in sort of making a film about Mark Reed or Chopper. I read the script. I thought, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then got in touch with them in Sydney. I said, said okay, it was going ahead. Andrew and Michelle had decided to shoot the film in two halves. And if you look at the film, there are two halves of the film. There's the first half is in jail, the second mm-hmm. half is out of jail. And Andrew, on the real Mark Reed's idea, decided to get Eric Banner, who is mm-hmm. a stand-up comedian here, to play him. They were initially thinking of Russell Crowe. Mark Reed decided that so he didn't want Russell Crowe to play him because he thought he'd be too serious. He wanted Mark Reed to play him because, as the real chopper says, that he's really just a fun-loving guy. Yeah. <laughs> so... They started production and uh, they shot for uh, three and a half weeks, then had a four-week break and then shot for another three and a half weeks, which suited the production of the film perfectly. It allowed Eric to do what I call a Robert De Niro raging bull, in other words, put on a lot of weight Mm -hmm. for the second half of the film. Also, within that four weeks, it allowed Andrew and I to actually work on the first half of the film quite dramatically Mm -hmm. because Andrew could not articulate why he was not interested in the, the very opening of the the film that we had or what he'd shot. And so within that four-week period, Andrew, um, I have to blame him for it or uh, praise him for it, decided to cut the first 21 scenes that had been shot for the film, wow. which we did. Yeah. And uh, why that was done was because the first 21 scenes, the character chopper being outside of jail and sort of saying, this is why... He is so much of a strange person and he has to be put in jail. He tries to break out a friend of his out of jail and also establish a person who is actually worse than Chopper mm-hmm. in real life. So in other words, an audience has an access to sort of say, well, Chopper's a really nasty person, but there's somebody other worse in the world. And that was the father character. And we knew that sort of Eric was so good at the thing that he had this amazing charm on the screen that we didn't need all of that sort of business. Yeah. So Andrew decided to cut it. That freed him up for the second half of the film to actually sort of play it a little bit looser. Uh, and so, hence the film was done as such. And then we sort of uh, finished shooting. Andrew, initially when I first met him, sort of forewarned me. He sort of said that, sort of, um, Ken, you have to realise if you want to work with me or I want to work with you or whatever, that I don't, I don't stop. Meaning that sort of, even if he's happy with something or other, he'll try another variation. Mm-hmm. And so we went out over the end by quite a bit. But that was the success of the film in some ways as well. You know, mm-hmm. The fact that sort of, um, it was relentless and sort of... Um, it's an incredibly... I, I, I screened it to some, to some uh, film and television school students in Sydney earlier this year and, and I couldn't stop laughing. They thought I was mad. I was just looking at it and I just couldn't stop laughing all the way through. I thought it was one of the funniest films ever made. But the, there is the real, the real character of Mark Reed. Yeah still exists. When it, the film was being made, he'd moved to Tasmania and married a, a girl down in Tasmania. Uh, Andrew had gone down to Tasmania at the end of the cut and showed him a version of the film, which he'd never really m- talked much about the real chopper at all until he, uh, about a week before he wanted to, had to go down there and show it to him, and then he started getting nervous. And um, he went down there and showed him the film, and Andrew, Andrew came back with the film, and sort of the real Mark said to him, I think you've really caught me as a character that I, that I am, which is really just a fun-loving, love it, you know, happy sort of guy. Yeah. But there's one problem I've got with the film, and Andrew said, what? That last scene where I'm left in the, the cell by myself and the two prison guards are left, and you know, the door's closed, I'm by myself, 
I look like sort of a really sort of sad person. You know, can you get rid of that? Mm -hmm. Andrew fled at that particular point because, and then he came back and said, "There's no one, no one cutting that scene out because that's the whole justification for the film." You know, mm -hmm. if we didn't have that scene in, then it would have been glorifying a criminal. Yeah. And that whole point of that scene is to actually say that that he's he's a, a sad soul. Yeah. The film Chopper has a very gritty feel to it, particularly through the shooting and through the sound. Um, I was wondering how you approached the cutting of the, the film and the story to help enhance this or uh, create almost your own gritty feel in the editing room. <laughs> we, we got down and got grubby in the editing room yeah. before we came in every day. Dragged the film uh, through the dirt. <laughs> No, we, we actually were working on a very clean version of the, the uh, picture quality, very clean version mm -hmm. of it. There was um, the film picture quality wise was really grubbed up later on in the, in mm -hmm. the grade. Um, the color grader at Cinevex then uh, called Deluxe in Australia, mm -hmm. Ian Letcher loved Andrew. Uh, he just loved him because he played with the concept of grading, uh, grading, mm -hmm. grinding it up. The sound actually I think is pretty clean. I think the 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 thing that I really like about the sound is, is Mick Harvey's soundtrack. I think that's extraordinary. That was a really tough ask to actually get him to do that because what actually happens with the sound or the music track on that film, the theme music is actually it was a tough ask to do because you couldn't put any interpretation on the film. As soon as you actually sort of came in with a thematic interpretation, you're actually taking sides. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of saying this is what's happening with this character. So what he actually did was almost like a minimalist score which actually just develops. It's a brooding score that actually happens all the way through. Yeah. I think it's one of the best successes in the film, actually. It's an extraordinary soundtrack. One question that I ask all the editors when I, when mm. I interview them, and that's... Uh, What's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Searchers. Searchers? Yeah. What is it about that that... Uh, oh, I just love the film. Yeah. It's sort of, uh, I always sort of laugh about the fact that in the 90s, 1980s, they actually sort of um, screened it on midday TV on some commercial network in Australia mm -hmm. and actually managed to actually make it run 90 minutes. Oh, wow. Which that's... I thought, well, how can you do that? Yeah. It's just, it's just such a wonderful film. That's, that's sort of what if you want to know about signs and meanings in the cinema, mm -hmm. that's got everything. That film, yeah. it's got Natalie Wooding running down the sand dune as well, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, no, it's just a wonderful film. That film. Well, that was part two of my interview with Ken Salos. Really good. Yes, and well, the sound of Lauren's voice. What does that mean? It means it's time for the forward film review. Okay, and what happened this week, Lauren? Nothing. Nobody guessed it right. I know. No one got it right this this week. So, um, just a reminder: the forward film review is when there's a forward, basically description or riddle, that describes a particular film or television show. And last week's was pilots all fired up, and we're gonna do a rollover. And the second clue for the same movie slash TV show is English Mapmaker Shares Story. How can they submit these? Uh, they can email them to info at artoftheguillotine.com. They can reach you on Facebook at facebook.com backslash artguillotine. Or if they just want to talk to you and don't care about the fact that it's completely public, they can always also tweet you at artguillotine. Yes. Now, hope that was clear. This brings to close our interview with Ken Salos. What's next? Well, next we're going to be doing another Lauren's render file. Oh, are we? Yeah. <laughs> well, because we have the interview. We have, well, we have a couple of interviews coming up. We have the Cut Notes interview. 
Yes, that was cool. And we also have the Forward Film Review webpage uh, creator coming on. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. The man so close to my heart, but not as close as you. <laughs> the, the viewer? Proximity the listener. Yes. Yes. Okay, exactly. so if you want to hear Lauren's render files, where we next week we're going to be talking to the Cut Notes developers, uh, stay tuned. I'd like to thank the Australian screen editors. I'd like to thank Ken Sallows, Sasha Dillon Bell, and of course my producer, Lauren Burkell. Hi. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.